Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Divine Polaroids by Pastor Sean Wood. Would you like to meet me this morning in 2 Kings chapter 6? I'd like to uh, talk to you this morning about seeing things God's way. If, if there's one thing that all of us need today, it's to be able to see things God's way. We kind of need God's vision in our circumstances, we, we need God's vision in our culture, in our, in our world today. Uh, so often we lack the, the, the vision of God. And uh, most people here would know that I like fly fishing. And there are three components to fly fishing that are absolutely essential to success. First one's the rod, the second one's the fly line, and the third one is a good set of Polaroids. Um, I, I lose glasses more than I can, and I break them, so I don't spend money on Polaroids. But my son has a set of Polaroids that are photochromic, and uh, they change with the light. And what the Polaroids allow you to do is look into water and where you couldn't see anything because of glare, and when you couldn't see anything else, you can see right into the water and you can see everything that's going on underneath the water. It's always been there. That's the funny thing. Uh, the fish were always there. And everything that was happening underneath the water was always happening underneath the water, but the glasses allow you to see that. And uh, for those that have uh, fished in Tasmania, Tasmania is where God created first. <laughs> Amen, Deb, I heard that. Amen, you've just been to Cradle Mountain. But back in Tasmania, there's a, on the central plateau, right behind Cradle Mountain, there's 3,000 lakes full of fish, and I, I've taken many people fishing, and they... They say, we can't see what you're seeing. And sometimes you just give them a set of glasses and say, now. And it's like their whole world opens up. They say, I can see fish all of a sudden. And, and everything is different. And so it can be with God. And you know what? God is always moving. We're going to have a look at that today as we move through this passage. God is always moving. God is always at work. And God is always willing to work. Sometimes we just can't see it. Today's story is about a man by the name of Elisha. Most people would have heard of Elisha. But as we come to 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, it starts off in verse 8 when it says, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel. So the king of Syria has once again uh, set himself against Israel. And the king of Syria at this time is a guy by the name of Ben-Hadad II. And Ben-Hadad is a title like Pharaoh or anything else. It's a family lineage to power within Syria. And this is nothing new. In the time of Elijah, Syria came against the people of Israel. Uh, the king of Israel then, the evil king, Ahab, uh, was killed in a battle against Syria. And again, they're coming against the people of God. And they are a formidable army. Has anybody ever looked at a map of the Middle East? Has anybody ever noticed that in comparison to everybody else around them, Israel's like that big? <laughs> nothing's changed in centuries. Thousands of years, nothing has changed. Israel was always this small little country surrounded by all these other big nations like Syria. And yes, they did come under judgment, but when they followed God, God kept them. And so we see now that the, the king of Israel at this time is a guy by the name of Jehoram. And Elijah has passed on his mantle to Elisha. 
Uh, and Elisha asked for a double anointing, and we see that it was granted to him. And Jehoram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And if anybody uh, roughly knows their Israel kings and their evil Israel kings, those two guys are right at the top of the list. Ahab and Jezebel, everybody knows Jezebel, and everybody's heard of Ahab. Ahab was absolutely evil. And uh, the history of Israel, uh, quite often, we'll see that God is very gracious today, but quite often uh, the condition of the people was depicted by the, the righteousness of the leader. A holy, righteous, and, and, and just kind of a king, Israel was flourishing, and when they weren't, so we now move into a time when Jehoram, and Jehoram, although he tears down the altars of Baal, and although he means to do well, he still follows the sinful practices of Jehu. But what I love about this is God is always looking to work, and God is always willing and desiring to do the supernatural despite that. You would think evil king, evil people, they're, they're straight in their hearts again, but God is always looking to move supernaturally. Let's keep reading. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place will be my camp. And now he's talking privately to his own servants. We need to note that. Verse 9, but, and I've said this before and I'll say it again. I love buts but only the buts that are in the Bible. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. And if there is one thing we need in the church today, it is more men of God, more men of God and more women of God. Why? Because the history of biblical times tells us that when God wants to move supernaturally, he is looking for men and women of God to do so. It's not just men. Rahab the prostitute is listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of faith and Rahab the prostitute is named in the lineage and the genealogy of Christ because she had the faith to believe that God was different. It's not just men and it's not just it's women as well, excuse me. When God wants to move supernaturally... He's looking for men of God. And although it's not just men this morning, I would put a call out to every man, every male in this place. You have a look at the landscape of the church today. Women are rising up in ministry and it's because we are not. God is looking for men. God is looking for godly leadership, men as well as women. The man of God was God's channel to do the supernatural. And have a look at that. When God's looking to work, he's looking for the man of God. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. And thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Now, the king of Syria, one of you guys has got to be cutting my grass here. One of you guys has got to be running to the king of Israel because he knows everything that I am doing. And one of the servants said, none, my Lord. But Elisha. And if you're sitting in this room today and you're thinking to yourself, what does it look like to be a man of God? What does it look like to be that 
person that God is looking for. Let's just take one example of Elisha. The, the term man of God is used many times throughout Scripture, 17 times in fact, uh, 16 in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And names like Moses was aligned with being a man of God, names like Isaiah, names like Elisha, names like Elijah. But then when we get to the New Testament, there's one guy that was set up to pastor uh, after Paul had left and his name was Timothy. And in, I believe it's 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, Paul writes and says to Timothy that he is a man of God. There is something different about you, Timothy. When everybody else is somewhat half-hearted, there's something different about you. What is it that's different about men and women of God? What is it that God is looking for? There's two main things we see. Uh, in scripture that separate a man or a woman of God. And the first one is men and women of God never show moderation. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, the church today on a, on a large scale, if we are honest with ourselves, and if I am honest with myself, we show far too much moderation when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. But interestingly enough, if we look through the scriptures, there are three reactions to the person of Jesus Christ. There are three different reactions and none of them are moderation. The first reaction is they either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they were afraid of him and they ran from him, or lastly, they were smitten by him and they devoted their entire lives to him. I haven't found one reaction of moderation in the scriptures at all. And I want to ask everybody in this room today, what's your reaction to Christ? God's looking for men and women of God that remove the moderation. Second one is that the men and the women of God were anointed. And I want to, I want to unpack this a little bit this morning because... Um, we may have some misconceptions about what it means to be anointed. In the Old Testament, we may have, Old Testament highlights it mostly, but we see anointing in the Old Testament the most. And mostly in the Old Testament, it was either a king, a priest, or a prophet that was anointed. And there was a purpose for this. You see, whenever a king, for example, King David and King Saul, whenever they were anointed, the prophet would come and the prophet would, would do an outward act, which was, which was a sign of an inward transaction. This, it's kind of like our baptism in a sense today. You see, baptism, uh, the, when we go into the waters and when we come back up out of the waters, it's an outward sign of an inward transaction that has happened in our lives. And so it similarly was with anointing. It's, it's definitely in line with the call of God, absolutely. But, but hold on to those thoughts for a moment as we bring it into the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, they would take oil and they would rub it or smear it into the person or they would pour it over them. And the idea was that, that, that they would be saturated with the oil. And the oil in the Old Testament is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. And as we move into the New Testament, no longer, you see, people think, well, those that are anointed are just the special people. Anointing's just for pastors and it's, and it's just for the Billy Grahams of the world. Well, that's not right. Because by the time we get to the first epistle of Peter, Peter says, you know what? You, all of you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. 
a holy nation, a people belonging to God, his anointing is for each and every single one of us. And what God is desiring is that the Holy Spirit, just just like it did in the Old Testament, just like they did with oil, that the Holy Spirit would fully saturate us. And you sit here and we say, why don't you, Holy Spirit? And what we find in the Old Testament and what we find in the New Testament is God is sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for us. God's like, I'm ready to move. I'm just looking for some men and women of God that are going to remove the moderation in their lives. I am, I am bamboozled that we wake up Sunday mornings as if we have a list of choices of what we're going to do. And we have to tick off the first five before we get to, I might spend some time with God. We live in busy times and the enemy would happily keep every single one of us busy right on into eternity. Every single person in this room is busy. Every single one of us in this room, if we are going to remove moderation, it looks like making, maybe you need to get up an hour earlier. Maybe you need to stay up an hour later. God is looking for men and women of God. Let's keep reading. O king, but Elisha the prophet who was in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That would make you a little bit more careful about what you say in the bedroom. I know it would for me. Verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And he was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. And I love Dothan. Because Dothan is a nothing little village in the back of nowhere. And it's not actually where Elisha lived. It's where he was staying. Elisha's residence was mostly in Samaria. But I love Dothan. And Timothy Keller highlights this beautifully. When he says, when we get to Dothan, we actually see the hand of God. And if we had divine Polaroids, it would completely change the picture. Because the other time we see Dothan mentioned in scripture is when there's a little Hebrew boy sitting at the bottom of a pit crying out to God because he doesn't understand why his brothers have just chucked him into a pit. And that boy's name is Joseph. But by the time we get to the end of today's passage, we're going to see that another man of God is crying out to God and God sweeps in miraculously and works miraculously in intervening in their lives. But the funny thing is, when we look at the life of Joseph, and if you're able to come in two weeks on Invite Sunday, we will unpack the life of Joseph more as we look at the divine fingerprints. But when you look at Joseph at the bottom of the pit, And you get the full story of Joseph. And when you have a look at Elisha and where he is right now, both of them are exactly where God wants them. Joseph, you you may be at the bottom of a pit, my friend. And you may be about to be sold into Egypt in slavery. And you may end up unjustly put in prison for a number of years. And the butcher baker and the candlestick maker that come down and have a dream, they may just forget you when they get back to Pharaoh. But God never forgot Joseph. And the story of Joseph, as we will unpack in a couple of weeks, is God was always at work in Joseph's life. And as a sideline, Joseph teaches us, if God gives you a dream, be careful who you tell. But now we're in Dothan, and something else is going to happen. God, two men pray. God answers both prayers, by the way. A little Hebrew boy is crying out from the bottom of the pit. 
But it's interesting, had Joseph had the divine goggles to see what God was doing, if Joseph was able to see uh, with divine Polaroids at that point in time, it may just have changed his prayers at the bottom of the pit. And one man needs a different perspective today. Let's have a look at who that is. Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, which is Gehazi, by the way, which now has leprosy, by the way, because he got a little bit greedy when Naaman came, or Naaman, however you want to pronounce it. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Who knows that the servant probably needs to quickly run to the toilet. This is a bathroom moment for the servant. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? What shall we do? How many of us reach similar circumstances in our lives? How many of us, even if we were to look outside these walls, we have a generation perishing and in desperate need of Christ? And how many of us would sit in here and say, Lord, what shall we do? There is the emphasis and the lack uh, of hope. What are we going to do? The place is surrounded with Syrians. They have a mighty army. What are we to do? When we go through the roll call of Hebrews 11, we find that faith is best defined by its expression. That's why Hebrews 11 starts with a definition and then says, let me expand on that and show you what it looks like in the lives of the heroes of old. So we find that the best definition of faith is in its expression, but we find that they all had one thing in common. They all had different eyesight. Have a look at Abraham. Abraham was called to leave somewhere that was familiar, says Hebrews, and to move out of there, not knowing where he was going. And he did all that he was doing because he could see the eternal city. He never lived in a city. He never actually physically inherited the while he was here, but he had different eyes looking in a different place. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says, uh, these, things, these last three remain, faith, hope, and love. Greatest of these is love. How do they all work together? Hope is the eyes by which we see. Faith is the hands of the soul by which we lay hold of. And faith is the channel and the expression that the supernatural works through. It's all through love. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? You can have all the tongues of men and angels, but if you haven't got love, you are wasting your time. Why? Because it's got nowhere to go. What shall we do? I love the answer of, Elisha. Elisha says, do not be afraid. And so many of us here uh, allow fear and anxiety to rob us of the possibilities of God. To be afraid is a feeling or a fear, really, of anxiety. Fear blinds us to the possibilities of God, for fear sees only the circumstances. You remember Peter in the boat? Jesus gave him a word and said, come... And everything was going hunky-dory until Peter decided to focus on the wind and to focus on the waves. 
Fear sets in. I have some good news for everybody in this place this morning. There is an antidote to fear. There is an antidote to anxiety. If you are prone to anxiety, if you are prone to fear, if you are prone to limiting the possibilities of God in your life and abroad because of fear, I have some good news for you this morning. There is an absolute antidote that Jesus points out in the New Testament, and it is this. Can you remember when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to them about the sparrows? And he says, how many sparrows are there? Two are sold for a penny, says Jesus, but not one of them falls to the ground without my father knowing. And Jesus says, just take a moment, just take a moment to consider. There it is. In one word, Jesus gives us the antidote when he says, just consider for a moment the lilies of the field. They don't toil and they don't spin, but yet they are dressed in more splendor than Solomon in all of his glory. What's Jesus saying? Don't worry about these things. Put your focus on God. Consider God. And that's exactly what the servant needs here. You need a different set of eyes. You need a different outlook. And you need to consider something apart from the horses and the chariots that have surrounded the city. And for some people in this room this morning, we may need to consider something other than the circumstances going on. Because we limit God. What would you do? You face, what does the man of God do? Does the man of God... I actually think it's profound what Elisha doesn't do. Let's read what he does here. Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed. And it's profound what Elisha didn't do. Elisha didn't dance, he didn't jiggle, he didn't, he didn't do any kind of weird and wonderful things but he knew that all the power rested in God, and so he prayed. And we wonder why God doesn't show up to the party sometimes. It's because, probably because we haven't invited him. Prayer invites God into our battles. Prayer invites God into our circumstances. Prayer is the invitation to God. God is the perfect gentleman. He doesn't come and kick the door in. We saw that last week. But if we will open the door for God, and what does Elisha do? He prays. What is the number one answer for everyone in this room? Pray. Pray. C.S. Lewis said, Prayer for me doesn't so much change the will of God. Prayer seems to so much change my will. It's interesting. So Elisha prays. Prayer invites God into our circumstances. He says, Oh Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw something completely different now. <laughs> And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What are you worried about, Elisha? These guys have got like one to ten of gods. The Lord opened his eyes. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots all around Elisha. We see that the Lord opens his eyes and there are people in this room this morning and I know my prayer is almost every morning I need to pray to God and say, Lord, you've got to open my eyes. 
Lord, I need your Polaroids to be able to see what's actually really going on. We feel like God's a million miles away. We feel like everything's going wrong. We feel like the car's spinning out of control. I remember when I was in the forestry, we used to, uh, we ran out of work. So the only work they had for us in winter was up the mountain planting trees and it was prone to black ice, thousand metres up. And if it rained the night before, which happens in Tasmania about every two hours, but if it rained the night before, it would freeze overnight the next morning. Uh, I know Margaret's nodding and going, I know exactly what it's like to drive on ice. And, and one morning I had a golden rule that if the log trucks were running, then I would go over the mountain because that at least gave us half a chance. So over we went this morning and a guy went past us like we were standing still. And we get to the top of a ridge and we're about to head down a hill and we find him off the road. And uh, all of a sudden, when we hit the ice, the ute's just going round and round and round and round and round. And one thing I have found to be the golden rule, if you have ever hit black ice, here's the number one thing you've got to do. Let go of the steering wheel. Take your foot off the brake and let go of the steering wheel. Because if you try to fight it, if you try to fight it, you're going to end up off the road, you're going to end up in a lot more trouble. And sometimes it's like that with God. You see... In a couple of weeks, we're going to learn about a little Hebrew boy that needed to let go of the steering wheel. (laughs) And when he let go of the steering wheel, God comes. And today, we see that Elijah and Elisha, excuse me, and his servant, when they let go of the steering wheel. And letting go of the steering wheel sometimes is exactly what Elisha does here, and that's praying. God, you're in control. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young men and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against them, verse 18, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness. I love this. In accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Do you not see that our prayers can actually act? It's like God's activated by our prayers. So many people come with, will God actually answer my prayer? Does God even hear me? Can can I do any good by praying anyway? And we see that God moves in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. As we move forward as individuals and as we move forward as a church, we will make our number one strategy, as I said a couple of weeks ago, our number one strategy is going to be prayer. Because it doesn't matter how great our plans are, it doesn't matter how flashy our programs are, it doesn't matter what building we meet in, None of that matters. If God doesn't show up, just like for these guys, then we are in danger of a generation slipping away without knowing him. And I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I have come to the conclusion I actually can't save anybody. I couldn't even save myself. But thank God he can. Prayer changes things and... uh, I want to speak briefly about our plans versus God's plans. As we're speaking about Dothan, we see, I'm sure Joseph wanted a different answer to his prayers uh, when he was at the bottom of the pit in Dothan. But some, so often we have our plans and God plans. You know, the scripture in Proverbs 16 verse 3, I think it is, that says that if we commit our ways to the Lord, he will make our path straight. In all your ways, it says in verse 3, acknowledge him. But I wonder if we fully understand what it means to commit our ways to the Lord. If you read the pastor's comments next week, you'll get an update on this as well. But 
But the word commit in the Hebrew means to roll over. In other words, it means here's my life and here's all of my will and here's all of what I want. And when we commit everything that we... Some people come to me and say, oh, I don't know whether I should take this job or I don't know whether I should do this or I don't know whether this person's the right... You know what? I'd say make a decision. Why? Because God blesses momentum. You see, guidance is not necessarily something God gives. It's more something God does. And when we roll our life over onto him... See, that's what the man of God does here. He's not flustered. He's not breaking out in a sweat. He doesn't need a toilet break. Why? Because he's rolled his life over onto God. And he knows that God will guide him. Rolling our life over onto God looks like living a life of prayer. Let's bring this to a conclusion. If you read the rest of the passage, I come down to the last part that says, verse 23, of course we know the... uh, the, the verses in between describe that Elisha asked for them to be struck with blindness. They're struck with blindness. Uh, he takes them to the king of Israel uh, blind and says, uh, here they are. King of Israel says, should I smite them right here and right now? And of course, uh, Elisha says, no, 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 give them some food and send them home. It's, it's amazing how you can win greater battles by grace than you can by force. But he says, no, no, give them something to eat and go home. And something very prominent happens in the history of Israel. As we read at the end of this section in verse 23, it says, so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. They never came again. History tells us never again did they come on raids into the land of Israel. You will win greater battles by grace than you ever can do by force. And then when God intervenes, I'm sure they all went back and said, well, I don't know. Does an army go back and say one guy defeated us? I don't know what you say. But they didn't come again. God intervened. So bring this to a close this morning. I'd ask the worship team if they come back so we can finish with a, with a song. I want to bring this into the New Testament this morning to a man who was actually extraordinarily religious. This extraordinarily religious man gets his life absolutely turned upside down because all of his life, he has sat at the feet of the most prominent Pharisee and, and, and teacher of that day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And he would write in his epistles that I grew up at the feet of Gamaliel. And then come, along comes Jesus and absolutely rocks his boat because now acceptance before God is not based on what I do. Now acceptance before God is not based on anything more than the favour and the grace of God. And it rocks his world and he wants to eradicate Christianity, but he has one enormous problem, his eyesight. And when this man encounters Christ, and every one of us here need to encounter Christ more often, Lord, may we encounter you more often. But when he encounters Christ, he is led by the hand and humbled and he comes to a servant. And everybody that was standing there records something very prominent that happens. And Paul, from the eyes of Saul at the time, but now Paul as we know him, scales fall from his eyes. And if you read the epistles of Paul, you will realise this man had a completely different set of eyes from that point onwards. 
He saw Jesus in a completely different way. One point in time, I hated Jesus and I wanted to kill every Christian. Now I love Jesus and I want to roll my whole life over onto him. Uh, We get to the epistle of the Philippians and he says, everything that I've learnt, everything that I knew, everything that I thought I'd forgotten, it's all rubbish. Why? Because I get to know Jesus. That's what a divine set of Polaroids can do for every one of us. We see things completely differently. Our priorities change. And Jesus becomes our priority. I want to ask three questions as we close. Are you too moderate towards Christ? Could you do with more anointing? I put my hand up for that one. I put my hand up for the first one too, by the way. I haven't got three arms. So evolution failed somewhere. (laughs) Lastly, do you need Polaroids and scales to fall from your eyes? Do you know there are, I I would say on a daily basis, God has got to let the scales fall off my eyes. Because all too often I am so prone to look at what is in the immediate proximity of what's going on. And I, I need to lift my eyes in my vision. I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask us all to stand as we pray. And if you need to do business with God, then the altar's open as we, as we play this last song. We want to pray with you if that's you this morning. Lord, we just stand in your presence and we know that you're looking for men and women of God. And I pray that in this place today, Lord God, that you would come upon our hearts so fully that all moderation would fly. Jesus, we no longer want to respond to you with moderation. And we, O God, ask for divine Polaroids to look as you see, Lord God, and that we wouldn't limit you and the possibilities of you. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open every single one of our eyes, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.